Moncrief with Energlaze on News Talk. Now, Matthew Herbert is an artist and musician. He also owns a lot of bones. A while ago, he bought the skeleton of a horse on eBay with the intention of using the bones as musical instruments. The result, unsurprisingly, is an album called The Horse. Matthew, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, as I understand, you bought the horse skeleton on eBay. Are there lots of skeletons for sale there? <laughs> um, well, I was... I, I naively sort of dipped my toe, hoping to buy a Diplodocus or something enormous, <laughs> the biggest skeleton I could find. And the biggest thing I could find was a horse. And and I started bidding, and and before I knew it, I'd I'd won it. Although I didn't quite know what my top bid should be. I didn't know what I should pay for a. I didn't know whether a horse skeleton would be three hundred quid or thirty thousand pounds. <laughs> yes. So it was a bit of a tense, tense twenty four hours as I was bidding. And, and um, when and when it arrived, Matthew. I know it was a horse skeleton, but you know what did you get? Was it assembled or was it in pieces? Um, so I got uh, four or five boxes from a guy who was emigrating. He was teaching anatomy to students, and it took him and his assistants uh, a whole day to wrap up all the bones and package it all up. And I was quite overwhelmed when it arrived. It sort of sat in sat in the corner of my studio, taking up a lot of space, sort of looking at me, going, "What have you done now?" And um, it, about after about a week, I got the courage to open it, and there was there was quite a strong smell um, with it. And I just thought, okay, I I really bitten off a bit more than I can chew. But then I just started to begin. Really, I just I, I knew an incredible instrument maker up the road, and I said to him, "Can you make me some bone flutes? You know, these are the earliest melodic instruments that humans ever made." And I took in some some of the leg bones and he sawed the ends off and drilled out the middle and put some beeswax in the top and lo and behold sort of made some made some flutes for me and and then I just began from there really. Yeah. And and what was it your intention to try and use all of the horse or as much at least as much of the horse as you could in the creation of the music? Yeah, it sort of felt like I had to really. It felt sort of respectful to the horse in some ways to not just discard things. You know, we have a very unhealthy relationship with nature and the natural world at the moment where we just take what we want and sort of discard the rest and so it felt that I needed to somehow uh honors maybe slightly strong but respect the horse and and so yeah I used I used whatever I could I made some bows for the violin players out of the rib bones and horse hair is still used for um, string players to play their instruments so stretch some horse hair over some rib bones I had a a harp made out of the pelvis. Um, I attached some electrodes to the skull, so when you touched it, you could trigger the sound of horses running through fields and things and made shakers out of other bits. And so it was really trying to trying to understand or listen to this skeleton, this thing that we all have inside of us, um, and try to make sense of this life that, that this horse once had. Before you started on this, or I suppose, you know, when you were buying the horse skeleton, did you have in your mind a shape for what the music would sound like, or was that more influenced by the the instruments you ended up with? Um, I I really didn't have an idea. I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and you know, one of the reasons for making records like this for me is to educate myself. And I'd never spent time with any skeleton, real skeleton before, let alone a, a horse's skeleton. 
So I sort of began really, and what I did was I I called up some musician friends, um, one of them being the brilliant Shabaka Hutchins, and uh, he plays a lot of flute and things. And I said to him, I've got these horse bones, flutes, you know, made from the legs of the horse. Can you blow through the horse's legs for me? And we met in a studio in London, and I sort of said to him, okay, I want you to imagine you're the first human being to ever play music. You know, what must it have felt like to blow through it? And we just worked on it together by sort of like archaeology in a way, but by using the bones rather than just dusting them or looking at them, but actually blowing through them and things. And it was an extraordinary noise because, you know, you just think back then the first person that played a melody by blowing through the leg of an animal would have been considered something scary, right? It would have felt mm. like you were the horse had come back to life or you were connecting with the gods or the ancestors or the divine or something. So it was very, very sort of paganistic or ritualistic in a way like that. So all I did was just begin like that, working with musicians, trying to tell the story of music and then just keep going. Then I added an orchestra and then added electronics, as I say, and brings us right up to date with sort of like high tech um, MIDI triggers and electronic uh, triggering so it really tells the story of music from from bone flutes right up to electronics. And at the same time, I found out in a way I was bringing the horse back to life because if you could touch the skull of the horse and trigger sounds and hear it running through a field, you've kind of brought it back to life in a way. So it became quite paganistic, but it was, to answer your question, really, it was really not what I thought I was doing when I started, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're kind of starting from a very primal source and then bring it up to uh, contemporary times M making music from the horse's skull though it's it's sounds slightly grotesque i know you don't probably mean it that way but people might react to it that way i, I think there is something a little uh grotesque about it. it's probably not the word that i would use but it feels very raw you know it feels very connected and that's something again something that we've really lost touch with the materiality of the things around us and actually but actually you know we wouldn't have music if it wasn't for animals you know we mm. used the skins to make drums you know we used ivory to make piano keys we use sheep guts and still do for certain strings for stringed instruments we still use horsehair and things so the whole thing of music making and art making in a way has got a, a slightly macabre quality to it that things had to give their life for us to be able to play music or to express ourselves culturally something uh something like that but it's you know as part of the recording i went back and recorded in the earliest in front of the earliest horse dra drawings in some paleolithic caves in northern spain and you realize that that people have been really engaging and thinking about our relationship with the natural world through art and through culture from the very beginnings, and these are dark spaces, you know, super resonant. You bang a horse drum in there and you get this huge sub bass resonance. And you just think that there's something very, very uh, primitive. I mean, that's an obvious word to say in that context, mm. but it, you feel very pagan. You feel very like you're trying to communicate with something or somehow, you know, using music to reach to the other side or reach back to the past or reach into the future. And so it, it is a fascinating sort of experience, really, of understanding much more about how music, what music's origins are likely to have been. You know, they they aren't, you know, now we're just used to music 
wherever we go buying things or in taxis or in aeroplanes or lifts and things like that but back then it would have really meant something i think yeah so all the instruments that you uh, that you had created where are they now and what do you plan to do with them so they're they're sat in sat in the corner of my studio along with boxes and boxes of bones and things and i i i've now got the difficult problem where we're performing live and touring so i'm off to Geneva next week and then to Berlin and then we're playing the Barbican in London uh, on the 14th of October and uh, but I've now got to try and transport the skeleton around the world and across international borders I've been spending a long time talking to vets and taxidermists and and uh, trying to work out the best best way of doing it but I there's something exciting for me about bringing a kind of um, sorry that was a click um, something exciting for me about bringing a horse skeleton into a place like the Barbican and we lay it out on the stage and arrange it and people come up and they're fascinated, you know, is because for many people, particularly living in the city, it's, we don't have that connection with raw materials anymore. And, you know, until I worked on this project, I'd never seen a complete horse skeleton in this, in this yeah. way. So it's, it's nice to be able to share that with other people and just go look look at this amazing thing that we have inside of us the, um, uh, when um, you when you bought the skeleton it, matthew we were you able to find out anything about the horse about the previous life it led um annoyingly i knew very little um which was i knew that it was a thoroughbred i knew that it was from the continent and um, that's what it said in the in the eBay listing, so I assumed they meant Europe, yeah. and that it was a female. That's all I. That's all I knew from uh, about it. But in a way, I quite liked this. Um, I, I began to like the fact that I didn't know very much about it because you can start to tell stories. So I worked at the Natural History Museum, and the curator there was telling me, "Well, you can tell it's a it's a, a racing horse because well, actually, two all thoroughbred." horses are come are descended from two stallions so you can trace it right back you know and also there's no wild animals uh, sorry there's no wild horses left anymore so all what we consider wild horses are all previously domesticated horses that have escaped so we've really sort of decimated the wild horse population and you know what was really extraordinary to me going back to these caves in northern spain was that actually seeing the horses on the on the on the cave walls, you realize that the horses were free then. They mm. weren't working for us. You know, they were going about their business being horses and just grazing freely or doing their thing. Yeah. And now we've sort of enslaved them and and actually turned them to our advantage. So, for example, we wouldn't have the Industrial Revolution if it wasn't for horses, you know, hauling coal out of the pits, which they were doing until the 1990s or um, or the transportation or being used as for the mail or used to um, turn water mill, uh, turn mills or whatever it might have been. You know, we absolutely relied on horses and we've built the whole foundations for modern society on these horses. So it's a really, um, it's a fascinating sort of story to uncover bit by bit, you know, and in a way the anonymity of my original horse, I think, has maybe helped me to amplify a wider story about our relationship with horses. Mm. The, uh, the album is called The Horses. You heard Matthew say uh, there it is being uh, toured around various locations. Matthew Herbert, thanks a million for talking to us today. Thanks for having me on. 
Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. with Anna Glaze on News Talk.